I remember in 97, 98, during the Asian crisis, some of my very wealthy friends, because the stock market capitalization of the companies collapsed and the stock price collapsed, currency collapsed. Briefly, they went from, say, $3 billion net worth to minus zero. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And I want to welcome my listeners in Chiang Mai today, Chiang Mai, Thailand. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guest, Dr. Mark Faber. Mark, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, I'm ready. And thank you for having me on your program. I can no. tell you about many losses in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're gonna have we're gonna have some fun. I just want to introduce you briefly to the market. You know, I'm gonna start my introduction of you by going back to 1992. I moved to Thailand and I was teaching finance in those days at a university. Yeah. And I realized I wasn't gonna make any money from doing that. So I decided I saw an ad out in the newspaper for an analyst at a broker. And I went and I applied and there was a guy there in 1993. I went to interview with him and he basically said, you're qualified enough. You've got a undergrad in finance and you got an MBA. You've been teaching finance for a year. Come on in and start working next week or whatever, next month. So I quit my job as a teacher and I went to work for a man named John Trimpton. And it was a, what a great move because John has been really a great mentor and a friend for many, many decades. But John was a big fan of yours. And that's when I first came to know about the gloom, boom, and doom reports <laughs> and about you. We never had any big connections, but there is one other thing I wanna talk about you that I remember when I was vice president of CFA Society Thailand, we asked you to come down and speak to the society. And you had a great you know, presentation that you made, but what was remarkable, and I think you blew everybody away, was the first 20 minutes of that presentation, <laughs> you gave it all in Thai language, which I was thoroughly impressed with. So I know you're living in, in Chiang Mai and have you know built quite a life and quite a global you know perspective, but I just wanna welcome you on the show and also ask you, what is the unique value that you have been bringing to this wonderful world? You mean what value I brought? Yeah, like I'm what is unique sure, about you? I'm not you? sure financial people bring much value because originally bankers and investment bankers and so forth, they uh, channeled capital from savers, from people that had money to people who were looking for money to build a business. And this function still exists, but it's a very small function relative to the kind of gambling function that the financial market has become and uh, do people just buying momentum, whatever goes up, they buy. And then when it goes down, they sell and so forth without much knowledge or regard to the fundamentals. So we could say that the world has become financialized. In other words, if we look at the last 40 years, 
or say in my case, more than 50 years, because I started to work in 1970. In 1970, or between 70 and 1980, in the U.S., the stock market capitalization as a percent of the economy, as a percent of GDP, was about 25%. It fluctuated between 20% and about 30%. But say on average, 25%. Now we're at something like 150%. So the financial markets have expanded much more rapidly than the economy. And we also have debts that have grown much more than the economy and the quantity of money and so forth and so on. So everything has been financialized. And as a result of that, we also have to be aware that the purchasing power of money has gone down. I mean, what you could buy for a dollar in 1970, now the quantity you could buy for a dollar is much smaller. In other words, everything is much more expensive. Everything has gone up, stocks, bonds, commodities especially gold and silver and so forth. And then also the prices in shops. So price increases are a symptom of what we called inflation and inflation. The proper definition is an increase in the quantity of money, basically. And then you can observe sometimes this price goes up and sometimes that price goes up. So it changes frequently. But in general, I'd say we have a huge bubble in financial assets, which in my opinion is in the process of being deflated. In some cases, it's been deflated a lot already. In other cases, we're still at the top of the bubble, like in uh, Fang and Fang-related stocks in America, in semiconductor sensors, in AI-related <laughs> stocks. But it changes every six months or one year. So the money shifts from one corner of the room of the world to another one. It's interesting because you mentioned about market cap to GDP. And I'm just looking at the number for the world and it's about 130%. And that's after a huge amount of debt pumping up GDP. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean, if we add it, debt and equity market capitalization would be at over 200 or 250% or something like this. So it's a gigantic kind of financial bubble on top of the real economy. And the real economy no longer really moves the financial markets. It's more the financial markets that move the economy. I mean, if there is a collapse in asset prices across the board, we had now one in commercial real estate in America. A lot of commercial properties sell for less than half of what they were valued at five years ago or eight years ago. But that is offset by, say, the residential market where property prices have essentially continued to go up until very recently. And selectively, some are down from the peak, but they're still... We talked about the housing bubble in 2006, 2007. And on top of that housing bubble, they superimposed another huge bubble because of artificial low interest rates. 
So it's a funny situation in the world. And I think in general, some people will make a lot of money, but overall, people will not make much money in financial assets um, in the next five to 10 years. Right. And I think it's good to talk in long term just because you've got such a great history, you know, and understanding of history. I was curious because I know you've got, you know, I know of your deep knowledge of Hong Kong, of Asia, what's going on in China. Also, you've got some good knowledge of Latin America. You understand the U.S. and you definitely understand Europe. I'm just curious, where is your idea about where these regions go over the next five or 10 years? You know, right now in the short term, it seems like Germany's just destroying its it's manufacturing. I look at the policies of the European bureaucrats and I just think it's just going to slow down the economy. But also Europe is very cheap, you know, from a trading perspective. I look at what's going on in America and it's a little bit scary. Asia looks interesting, but it, you know, hard to perform with the US. I mean, it's it's hard to to think about these bigger picture markets. But what would you say about those different regions relative to each other over the next, I don't know, five years or 10 years? Well, if we compare, say, the performance of emerging markets vis-a-vis -vis the U.S., say, relative to the S&P, or you compare Europe relative to the S&P, or Latin America relative to the S&P, then everything is cheap vis-a-vis -vis the S&P. And if we believe in some sort of reversion to the mean, we would assume that at some point, emerging markets, Latin America, commodities, and also European stocks would outperform the US. But I'd just like to <laughs> point out, in theory, you can have outperformance in the sense that the US market, which is concentrated in, say, 10 different companies, they have a very high market weight within the S&P, the Googles of this world and the NVIDIAs and so forth. So relative could mean that the U.S. market drops 50% and the other markets only drop 10% or 20%. But do you understand if you're a 100% stock investor, 20% is a lot to lose. I mean, if you have 100 million, you lose 20%, it's 20 million, it's a lot of money. So my view is that investors should always be diversified and hope that not all assets collapse at the same time. But in today's inflated world, I mean, if you look at the world in 1980-82, when stocks were low and bonds were, had huge yields, now we had essentially the opposite. Stocks were high and yields on bonds were very low. The years 1981 and 82 to say 2021 were wonderful years for every asset, whether it's a Swiss watch, a Patek Philippe Rolex, or white wines or red wines, collectibles, art, etc., and stocks. And the future may not be like that. I think we may have just hit a low point in inflation and in interest rates. And from here onwards, in other words, 
the law was in May, August 2020. From there onwards, the trend will be towards rising rates of inflation and uh, rising interest rates, interrupted by significant corrections. I mean, you look at 1970 and 1980 in between, there were huge bond market rallies, but all within a long-term bear market. Mm. Another question. Okay, so thinking about global regions, you know, U.S. has been, you know, pumped up pretty high relative to all others. So your point is that, you know, if the U.S. falls, maybe these regions will fall less. So diversification would pay to some extent if you're only looking at stocks. The other question I had about is just about Asia for a minute. You have such a deep understanding of Hong Kong. And I just wonder, is it is it over for Hong Kong? I mean, and is it over for China? I mean, look at where these markets are, particularly the Chinese market. I'm just curious, do you think that the U.S. has the tools to keep China down, maybe? Is that what's happening? I'm just curious about your perspective on China and Hong Kong. You mentioned I have a deep understanding. I really don't think that this is the appropriate term. I may be a, a one-eyed observer and other people are blind, you understand? But nowadays, to understand anything in the asset markets is very complex because, say, in 1970, we paid attention to the money supply in the United States and to the U.S. economy, and Europe was on the periphery, and China and India and so forth didn't exist in investors' horizons. Nowadays, you have to pay attention to domestic political events. You have to pay attention to geopolitics, to trends in warfare, and so forth and so on, and to fiscal spending by countries and to the quantity of money and so forth, and bailouts and interventions. So there are so many factors having an impact on asset markets that it's very difficult to understand the conditions perfectly well, and that includes me. But I'd like to say this. I was known in Hong Kong as a super bear, and in 1997, I published a small book called The Rise and the Fall of Cities, because throughout history, we have observed that some cities began with as if from nothing and became prosperous and powerful like Rome, and then they vanished. Rome didn't vanish from the face of the earth, but it's politically no longer important. It's still a religious sense, but say its importance to the world is gone. Where well, say you take China, in 1970, China consumed about 2% of industrial commodities around the world. Now it's up to around 50%, some more than 50% and some a little bit less. But it is a major change in the economic center of gravity, a shift away from the industrial, developed, civilized Western nations. I'm just saying civilized because that's their view. Other people have <laughs> different views. And there is this shift in the balance of economic power 
from west to more the east, China, and in future also India. But then you look at countries like Indonesia, they have a population of 250 million. Maybe they don't have a strong armed force, but potentially they could become, you know, more assertive. And you have Bangladesh and Pakistan and Brazil. These are all countries with populations of around 200 million. So it's a very different world. And I'd say I was bearish about Hong Kong properties because each time a city is absorbed into a big empire, like say Salzburg and Augsburg, they were absorbed into the Austrian-Hungarian empire, Roman Catholic uh, empire. Anyway, once they become absorbed, Venice as well, they lose their importance, their international autonomy mm -hmm. and so forth. And Hong Kong is becoming part of China. Having said that, the Hong Kong property stocks are all down like 70, 80% from the peak. And if you look at the price to book of Hong Kong shares, and also in Singapore, some property developers, they sell at say, 25% of book value. Now, the book value in Hong Kong may go down for sure. The property price, they will still adjust on the downside. But the transition from being an international city to being an or the most important city within the Greater Bay Area in the south, Guangdong province and Shenzhen and so forth and so forth, Macau, that's a region with 80 million people. So to be an important city in a country with 80 million people is not so bad. Mm. And I mean, as you know, since you've been an analyst, analysts of stock brokerage firms, they recommend to buy near market highs or near a sector's high. And when everything goes wrong, they recommend to sell. And so now you have an overwhelming number of analysts and of course, the ignorant Western and American journalists, they are the most useless people in the world. I always consider myself having been a broker to be <laughs> being a useless character. But when I look at the media people, that is, I mean, the, the high point of uselessness. And they are all negative about China. Anything China does, anything Hong Kong does is always negative not taking into an account that the securities laws were introduced largely because of the demonstrations in Hong Kong, which were organized by the American State Department, the CIA, and so forth and so on, and paid for and supplied with uniforms and all kinds of equipment to create an embarrassment for China. That was the ambition. And the Chinese reacted like anyone else would react. They kind of got rid of these artificial, in quotation marks, NGOs that are nothing else than an extension of the arm of the CIA and the American State Department. Yeah, it's, that's something that so they... I would say, I've been buying property stocks in Hong Kong lately. 
because unlike Western property companies, which are usually quite leveraged, in other words, mm-hmm. they have large debts. In Hong Kong, the Hong Kong families are so rich that they never needed to borrow any money and they made so much money. So you look at, say, Robert Ng's Sinoland, no borrowings. And even Hong Kong land as a subsidiary of Jardine Matheson doesn't have a lot of borrowings. The Swaya group doesn't have a lot of borrowings either. So overall, the financial conditions of Hong Kong property companies is actually quite good. Mm, that's interesting. I guess one other region that I would love to hear your opinion on is what's the future for Europe? Yeah. I've just written about the economic suicide. The green communists and the socialists have brought upon Germany. It's madness. But again, and I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but again, I think there's a lot of American influence in uh, having sort of forced Germany to buy energy from the U.S. instead of Russia. And the dumb socialists, uh, the reason they're actually socialists is that they don't understand anything about economics. Because if they understood economics, they wouldn't be socialists. But in their ignorance and arrogance, they fell into the trap and they, as a result of that, they increased the cost of production in Germany dramatically. And if you listen to all kind of pronouncements by business leaders in Germany, say the big industrial groups, they all say it's no longer profitable to produce in Germany. Then in the whole of Europe, they have this madness to go after the farmers. (laughs) When you think of it, they import food. They can't survive without imported food. But the little food production that they could still have, they're in the process of destroying. (laughs) It's an unbelievable sight. And the worst part of all this, at the same time, they are increasing taxation. So you have kind of a recipe how to destroy an economy. This will be a textbook case in economic history, how the green socialists, communists, and the other socialists, the left-leaning media, the left-leaning government officials that are completely ignorant. You listen to speeches, I mean, it's the same in America, Kamala Harris, you listen to Baerbock, all these people, Aidan in New Zealand before, they are clueless, clueless, no idea about anything. And... But I mean, they go and tell the world, well, well this is like do? this. Baerbock travels and trusts the former foreign minister of Britain, and later she was prime minister for a little while. She went to India to teach the Indians how to behave. You know, this is a different world. It's not the 19th century when the British could send some soldiers to China and beat the hell out of them and then expropriate Hong Kong. Mm. <laughs> Times have changed. Well, I just wonder, you know, it's now pretty clear that the leaders of Europe are just stupid and dumb. But the question is... It was clear right from the start. 
Yeah. I was just watching the U.S. leaders so I could make that conclusion from the start there. But the question is, how did Europeans, the average Joe in Europe, get so stupid to elect stupid leaders? How did the Canadians elect one of the greatest idiots in history, this Justin Trudeau? I don't know. I mean, the problem is that the leaders will be gone, but the people that vote for them are still there. Mm. It... All my Canadian friends, and I have many Canadian friends, they have nothing good to say about Trudeau. Although they all complain about him, he got elected. I interviewed on episode 760, Johan Norberg, who wrote The Capitalist Manifesto. And the conclusion of my discussion with him for me was that we have to fight to get capitalism back. And I'm just, you know, it's just watching what's happening. I mean, 20, 30, 40 years ago, nobody could have imagined that you'd have to fight to get people to pay attention to capitalism. They were trying to get out of, you know, communism so desperately, whether it's the, you know, the Soviet states or, you know, Eastern Germany or even China, getting out of communist policies was the whole goal. And now we've got to fight again to get capitalism to bring us out because the next big thing that's happening and it's big in Thailand is the ESG, the same type of people that are running the political things are pushing the ESG agenda so hard on companies now. And now you're watching companies with returns falling. And, you know, it's an interesting thing of what's happening now, particularly in Thailand. We've got a market that's been down, you know, for a long time. The other thing, I was doing a podcast with another person. We were talking about education over the last 30 years. And I said, you really can't bring down education standards for 30 years and not expect there's some consequence. And at least in the U.S., that's what's happened. <laughs> Especially if the lowest standards of education are in high political office. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, for me, it's actually not very surprising because the economic world today is an economic world that is heavily influenced by political thinking. And you very seldom see in economic discussions People like Ludwig von Mises quoted, or Hayek, or Schumpeter. Schumpeter is one of the really big, important economists of the 19th century. He wrote the history of economic cycles, business cycles. And his standard work, which is, has been a bestseller for many, many years when it was published, is Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy. That's the book. Can you see? Yep. <laughs> okay. And in there, he explains how capitalism develops and the advantages of capitalism and so forth. He doesn't say that it's the optimal system, not at all. He says it's basically an unfair system in the sense that some horses run faster than others and win the race. Hmm. and become rich, and others fail. But he also points out in his book 
how capitalism inevitably will lead to socialism, partly because of academics. The academics, they must hate the guy who starts with nothing, you know, he has no education and becomes successful, whereas a butcher or as a carpenter or as a builder or just will build wells. And we have many examples of people that never went to Harvard and uh, Ivy League universities and they all became successful. Larry Ellison is a case that springs to my mind. And then he also explains how capitalism slides into socialism because of envy of some people, the academics as an example or that I just mentioned, and also because the rich capitalists eventually have a lot of influence and they, to some extent, like socialism. Now, that he didn't write, but my interpretation of today is the rich capitalists, they love the government to spend money. In America, let's assume you and I, we are wealthy businessmen. We love the government to take money and print money and to throw it at each American, at illegals and so forth and so on, because these people will come and shop in our Walmart <laughs> and be on Amazon and be on Facebook and then, then you understand? So we pay tax, but we pay a small percentage of tax. We get the government to have deficits and to spend freely. And then the government recipients of government funds, subsidies and so forth, they come and spend in our businesses. So among the rich people, actually, nowadays, this is also the case in Germany. I always think, how could German industrialists accept these incompetent government officials, these bureaucrats? This is a mystery to me. But this is one reason. and. In this book that I just showed, The mm. Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, Schumpeter, that he gave a speech in 1949 at the New York Economic Club. And he spoke precisely about this. Unfortunately, he died three months later. He had a heart attack or something. But it's a very interesting book to read to understand how we could slide into socialism. And the socialist idea is not about creating higher standards of living for everybody. The socialist ideology is an ideology of destruction. I repeat, destruction, that's what Karl Marx essentially wanted, to destroy private ownership. He wanted the state to own things and the state to allocate. And what is the most beautiful instrument to do that is to have a central bank. Because a central bank allows people, the government, to spend endlessly. They finance it. Mm. The consequences come one day at the later stage. I think it's arrived in the sense that interest rates have shot up from an artificially level to still a reasonably low level, given the high rate of inflation we have at the present time. Mm. 
But it's very interesting. I mean, I, there's no system that is perfect. I think the most imperfect system is to have government officials that when they make mistakes, they're not held accountable for the mistakes. Say, the lockdowns were clearly a mistake. The vaccines were clearly a mistake because we have excess deaths statistics at the present time everywhere. Mm. But the government officials who locked up people, they had no clue of what they were doing scientifically. They're like Greta Thunberg. They say, listen to the experts. We don't know anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, this is the tragedy of today's world. It was much easier to assassinate the Roman emperor or to cut off the heads of a French royal. Nowadays, the bureaucracy, nobody's responsible for anything. So people make huge mistakes and the result is you shoot them upstairs. <laughs> well, after that great intro of your views on things, which I generally agree with, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, <laughs> tell us about the circumstance leading up to it and tell us your story. Well, I mean, the first, and uh, not necessarily in the money, but in terms of percentages that always turned out to be zero, was to lend money to friends. That is the worst investment you can make. If you have a friend in trouble, the best is to give him a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars or hundred dollars and say, look, I tried to help you to sort out your problems, but money I cannot lend because I'm not a bank. You have to go to the bank. And he comes to you because he can't get the money from the bank, or he has already loans from the bank. So if the problems then become severe, he will pay back the bank first and not the friend. So as a friend lending money to other friends, you lose everything. You lose your money and you lose the friend. Maybe to lose the friend is the least painful, but nonetheless, it's an annoying thing. So I have given up lending money to friends. I just give some if I can help. And the second worst investment was, and you may know this, and I admit this to anyone, in the late 1990s, I became convinced that the technology stock, the dot-com bubble, would be bursting. Mm -hmm. But you understand, sometimes the stocks go on on the upside or the downside much more than we ever thought. So in 99, the NASDAQ doubled within just a few months. And then at the turn of the year, 99, 2000, Greenspan injected liquidity into the system because they were all talking about the millennium and so forth. And the NASDAQ then went up another 30% between January 1st and March 21st, when it peaked out. So it was a vertical rise, and I was short, heavily short in those days, but I covered 
around the end of 99, although it would have been a mistake long-term, but you understand, if you're heavily short and it goes up 30% in three months, you may be bankrupt before you write. <laughs> so that was money-wise the greatest loss. I'm always afraid that the next bubble, when it burst, or the current bubble, when it burst, and financial assets go down, that this will be the greatest loss in my life. So I'm diversified. But even diversification, I don't feel very comfortable because among the diversified assets, I hold cash deposits with banks. Mm. Well, they could fail. The dollar could collapse or other currencies could collapse. I mean, you've seen it all in 97, how fast yep. currencies collapsed. And I remember in 97, 98, during the Asian crisis, some of my very wealthy friends, because the stock market capitalization of the companies collapsed, and the stock price collapsed, currency collapsed. Briefly, they went from, say, $3 billion net worth to minus zero, to, you know, minus. And then it recovered. I'm just saying, when things go bad, they can really go bad very pronouncedly. Mm. Yeah, the so time... that, at that time, I lost a lot of money. But I thought it was a good lesson because I had always sort of a belief. Tim Chenos was a good friend of mine, the mm -hmm. famous short seller in America. We're still friends. But my view was that it would be more companies going out of business than survivors. What we, or I certainly overlooked somewhat, is that you could be short 10 stocks and nine go down, say, 100% each. They all nine go bankrupt. But the one that survives, like Amazon, because Google didn't exist yet in 99, 2000, but Amazon did and Apple, they go up, say, a hundred times. You understand? So yeah. to make money on the short side is difficult, in my view. Mm. Anyway, and after that experience, I said to myself, maybe I've been too bearish. The Fed prints money and Greenspan, he cut interest rates after 2001 significantly and kept them artificially low given the housing bubble that developed but i didn't want to short anymore because of the money printing mm. so I, I went long asian stocks and they did very well until 2008 2009 the office they didn't do well but i have to say my thai portfolio which I have because I live in Thailand. And also, I've heard all my life that stocks always perform better than other things. So I thought I will test it to see mathematically, is it true? And I have a portfolio of Thai stocks, fairly substantial, because I think we may move into a situation where you cannot remit money from country A to B. So I want to have money in Thailand. The portfolio has done okay, it hasn't lost, although the market is down, mm. but it hasn't lost money over the years because of the high dividend yield I have on that portfolio. But as you know, since you live in Thailand, a lot of companies now 
have been cutting dividends. And if I look at the whole situation in Thailand, I don't think that stocks are all that cheap. Some are improving, but some are deteriorating. So the market is not as cheap as it was in 2009 or 2003. Yeah, so much has changed in the Thai market now. And again, I go back a little bit to the ESG and the pressures that these companies are under. Let me ask you a question. If you were to, let's imagine that a young person nowadays doing something like you were doing back in those days around 2000, you know, and before that, or thinking about yourself, what would be your recommendation for them to not make that same mistake of being overly bearish? What, what would be the thing that you either could have done or you would advise someone to do when they get excited about a negative story and they think it's going to come? I think the reason I advocate diversification in essentially stocks, bonds and cash, precious metals and real estate is that it would be unusual that everything collapses everywhere. By diversification, I don't mean that you would have a bank account with, say, a Swiss bank, and you would own some American shares and Canadian stocks and some European equities and Asian equities. But I mean diversification. You would own some properties, say, in America or Europe, but also some properties maybe in China or Hong Kong or Singapore or Thailand or Indonesia or Latin America, and some assets held with a custodian in these countries. In other words, you would have an account with a Swiss bank and with a bank in London and maybe a bank in Thailand and maybe a bank in Singapore, Hong Kong, and so forth. You understand? That is a true diversification. Not that all your money is under the jurisdiction of the American imperial power or neo-imperial power, because that may one day be taken away from you, or you may not have the permission to remit it outside the U.S. So you understand? Yep. Diversification, everybody has to think very clearly what it means for him. Yeah, I think that you... I would advise. And number two, as you know, in America, Fidelity is a very large fund management company. And now Fidelity, they have many funds, say around 60 or 80 funds. Some are biology, some are chemistry, some are engineering companies, energy companies, gold mining companies, and then, then. They have a program you can switch between the funds free of charge for an overall charge annually. And statistically, you can then measure individuals, observe individuals, how successful are they at switching funds and outperforming the market. Now, there's a company in America, Dalbar, they measured the performance of individuals compared to the index. The individual performance is a catastrophe. It's like 2% per annum. And I tell you, I personally believe if the day I became a worker, in other words, when I finished my studies, I was 25, 24, 
I started to work with 24, 25. If from that day onwards, I'd put all my money that I earn always on deposit, I would have had rising interest rates until 1981, then a fall in interest rates, but high returns. And the compounding effect of that would have beaten most investments. Mm. And I tell people always, look, you don't know what to do with your money. Buy yourself a property, pay cash, because then you're not going to do something much more stupid. Because people, if a good salesman drops into the door of someone and this someone is a cautious person, but he sees his neighbor making money in bitcoins or in Nvidia stock or whatnot, the salesman will make the sale and tell him, you see, you know, your neighbor is a smart guy. He bought Nvidia. Yeah, there's a lot of sales going on. I want to, uh, in wrapping up, I just want to get your recommendation. I was looking at, first of all, I was looking at capitalism, socialism, and democracy, and I've, I've got that down. I listened to you talk on another podcast where you talked about another book about inflation. It was called The mm. Economics of Inflation. Correct. So I'm going to include that in the show notes. Is there any other book that you'd recommend? That is the economic of inflation, Breziano Turoni. Look at that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and then I say, I mean, this is my recommendation because a lot of people always ask me, we don't know so much about economics, but I think an outstanding book is Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. Yep. And also you go on YouTube, you give in Milton Friedman. And he has given in the late 60s and 70s a lot of speeches. Some are maybe just 10 minutes and some are an hour. But you understand, Friedman, he was sort of a common sense guy. I mean, he, he was an accomplished economist. And he understood what money printing does. But he was also a man who could observe, say, in a village, how the market functions and how people behave and so forth and so on. And this book about capitalism and freedom is outstanding. Because, of course, you can say, look, we had a flood, an earthquake, the government should help. But once the more you ask the government to help, the more you will be regulated later on, the more the government expands and the less freedom you will have. And I mean, Friedman, he doesn't argue that capitalism is the perfect system, but it's better than the others because under capitalism, and this is also described in Schumpeter's book, it's a dynamic process. In other words, successful businesses expand and unsuccessful businesses fail. Now, the problem arises in our society because people say, well, the companies that fail, we should help them and this and that. You understand? Mm -hmm. Then you end up with a system of subsidies and all kinds of regulations and laws and then endlessly. 
And the personal responsibility of people diminishes. And that is in capitalism. Yeah, there's failure and so forth, but people are free. If someone doesn't want to work and goes drinking like I do every day, he will <laughs> fail. <laughs> people who are hardworking like you and your viewers, they'll all succeed. <laughs> well, I, I see you moving around your chair like you're ready to go for your drink. So I wonder. No, no. Tonight I have to start writing. So ah. <laughs> well, it's that, out of that, the question. That brings me to my last question, but I did want to highlight the the resource of the of going on YouTube and looking for Milton Friedman because he's just got so many great things to say. And I did see him being interviewed on Phil Donahue many, many years ago. Yes, he exactly. Said, he said something that was just fantastic when Phil Donahue said, you know, how are you going to, you know, you're, you're just trusting the greedy capitalists, you know, the rich people. And, you know, they're just greedy. And he said, he said, you think in communist Russia and Soviet Russia or in China that you think that the communist leaders are any less greedy than the U.S. capitalists? <laughs> They're not. And that was such a great reminder of human nature. Yes, but also I think he brought to the attention of the world. Of course, the socialists nowadays, they don't like to present the robber baron capitalists like Andrew Carnegie, the Rockefellers, and so forth as uh, nice people. They were not nice. Mm. But we have to see that because they built railroads, refrigerated cars, canals, and steelworks, it created jobs. And everybody says the living conditions of workers were horrible. Well, I agree with that, but they were probably better than in Europe. Otherwise, why would so many Europeans have gone to America? And they didn't go because of social security. There was no social security and government spending as a percent of the economy was never more than 10%. They went because of jobs and prospects of a better life. And the transportation costs fell. The meat costs fell. They brought about what capitalism does. It does not produce goods for the king and the queen. It produces goods for the average person. And what's wrong with some people becoming rich? I rather have Carnegie having made a lot of money than that that money is in the hands of a F socialist. Amen. Well, the last point I want to make about the big mistake I made I moved in 73 to Hong Kong. I regretted all my life that I didn't buy a property at that time. Of course, I didn't have any money, but that aside. And the second one, I should have taken it easy for six months or a year and learn a perfect Chinese. Not necessarily Cantonese, but Mandarin. Because later on in my life, it would have helped me a lot by speaking a perfect Chinese. Mm. But I didn't do that. So I tell a lot of my young friends, you know, what would you do is you need to know something that other people don't know so well. And you have to be an expert in one field, either fixing Mercedes cars or fixing Ferrari cars or be a good carpenter or painter or whatnot. 
because for quality people will pay. Mm. And you know, you live in Thailand. The construction standards here are not good. That is true. So let me ask you what my last question is, what are you working on for the next, I don't know, six to 12 months? What, what is something that has got you excited? Well, as you know, we all went to school and we studied geography and mathematics and history and so forth. We all hated school, <laughs> especially homeworks and so forth. Now in my free, I mean, I work all the time because writing is not a job. You just sit for one or two hours. You have to prepare it over a longer period of time. And especially in the financial markets nowadays, you have to follow so many different factors. But I'm interested in the details of the, say, decline of the Roman Empire, because they advance all the time a series. But history is written by historians and not by economists. That we have to be aware of. And the decline of the Roman Empire occurred for one and only reason, overwhelming reason, and that was they ran out of money. They didn't have enough money because in the initial stage of the empires, each time they captured a new territory, it was like taking over a company with good earnings and you know, that then increased the total earnings of society. But in the end, that didn't work anymore. They took over a lot of societies and there was no reward. And in some cases, they had to pay for the foreign forces like the Goths not to invade the Roman territory. So they, instead of collecting tribute, they start to pay tribute. That's the U.S. has to do the same. They have to pay all kinds of countries all the time. So I'm going to wrap it up there. Listeners, that's another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help <laughs> 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. And as we conclude, Mark, I want to thank you again for joining the mission. And on behalf of ASTOTS Academy, I hereby award you. <laughs> alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? No, I wish you all well. And I think as I pointed out in the earlier part of this discussion, I think that one has to understand what is inflation and inflation can shift from one sector to another sector. It's like, you could have manufacturing prices go up and you can have service prices go up. What we had in the last 40, 50 years is asset prices went up. In my view, as we've seen now with commercial properties, asset prices are quite vulnerable, especially when consumer prices go up. And as a result of the increase in consumer prices, there is a rising tendency in interest rates. Now the central bank can keep them artificially low for a while, and then we have negative interest rates in real terms. In other words, inflation is 6%, the 10 years treasury is at 4%. So we have negative yields in the real terms, inflation adjusted. But that then fuels more inflation like in the 70s. And so I'd be more prepared to preserve my capital than to aim at making a lot of money. 
All right. Because every every day someone wins the lottery, someone wins at the casino, and a thousand people lose. But in general, I think we're moving into an unfavorable phase for financial assets. Okay, and that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, let's celebrate that today. We added okay. one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on The Upside.